Welcome to Twitch of the Death Nerve, a cult movie podcast that takes a deep dive into a different film each episode. Our wide-ranging discussions will touch on genre, culture, and the history of psychotronic cinema. I'm Charles. I'm Sam. I'm John. And we got something big today. So in the past, I've been a little skittish about how to approach, you know, discussing certain films and genres and topics that are either shocking or crass or extreme. I don't want to sound afraid when I'm talking about those movies. Or, I mean, I don't want to sound like a confused kid who's wandering around a department store separated from their parent. But today, I'm not skittish. I'm terrified. Last episode, we covered Italian cannibal films, which often boast uh, banned in 52 countries, you know. Today, the movie we're going to discuss is different from those because it was actually banned. The director, Choi Hark, who we'll get into, was told by censors this film is illegal. Yeah, for years, the only available cut of this movie was the weird reshot version where he kept some of the original footage but, like, changed the storyline so that the censors would approve it. Eventually, Choi Hark commissioned a transfer of his original film to VHS, which was later released on what is now long since out of print, this uh, French DVD. So today, we will be discussing the original version of his 1980 film, Dangerous Encounters First Kind. Okay, so if you're confused about why Goblin's iconic Dawn of the Dead score was just playing, don't worry. Uh, we, we share your confusion. A lot of Hong Kong movies steal it. Yeah. It's fitting because, you know, in Dawn of the Dead, the very beginning with the, um, the TV station and it's all chaotic. That's this movie the whole time. Yes, yes. that sort of end of the world vibe. Nervous energy, yeah, yeah. So it, it's allowed to steal it. I mean, this movie is is really difficult to discuss, and it's also really difficult to watch because it's really hard to find this film, and it's so intense. It's grotesque at times, and it's it's so nihilistic, it's... Very, very hard to describe, and this is going to be a hard episode to kind of wrangle around. Yeah, uh, so I think we might go into the plot a little bit more than we usually do, just so be, because we assume that most of you haven't had a chance to see this. Oh, a- absolutely. So Dangerous Encounters First Kind is Choi Hark's third film. Choi Hark, famous for... Being amazing. Yeah, great films. I love fucking Knock Off, the Jean-Claude Van Damme movie he did in the 90s. It's incredible. We Are Going to Eat You, his second film. That's that's my favorite yeah, one. Yeah, that's the fucking king I shit. I still haven't seen it. It's so I've been fun. saving it. You're going to love it. It's Jackie Chan on Cannibal Island. Which, which <laughs> yeah. sounds incredible, but it's also hard for me to imagine loving something more than Zoo Warriors. Oh, yeah. I forgot yeah. all about Joy, Zoo Warriors. Joy Hark has such... An amazing career. He's a mostly a producer. He produced the Better Tomorrow films. He worked with Chayun or um, John Woo with like his breakout films, and is just like a major player in Hong Kong cinema. And a lot of the movies that he directed, like even his most famous ones, are the Once Upon a Time in China series in the U.S. I mean, those are super famous around the world, really. And <laughs> and this is not our Choi Hark episode. <laughs> no, I mean so. 
Dangerous Encounters First Kind is a movie that feels like it was made by a 17-year-old who is fucking hates everything around him for good reason. And but it but it's so it's competent at times, but there are times where it's not competent. It just has this energy that's just so raw and I don't know if I would agree with that. I like I think it's not that I well, at least for me, those times that you're talking about, I don't think it feels incompetent to me. It feels like experimental in this really chaotic way that you usually see from untrained, independent, very young filmmakers. So it's like amazing that he could tap into that energy. I'm with Sam here. So when I'm watching this movie, I, I'm really enjoying it, but I'm also like, I was getting very frustrated because the plot just kept kind of zigzagging. And it was going to these places where like, if you just focused on this thing, this would be like an awesome, like De Palma-esque crime thriller. Yeah. But then when it got to the ending, it finally made sense to me. It's crazy. Yeah, but I was like, oh, this is what they were building up to. Is all it right, too right. early to... Okay. Yeah, of course it is. I haven't even said the plot. All right, okay. so we, we have to... Uh, we're going to try our very best to explain the plot of this very dangerous and illegal film. It's not illegal for... It feels fucking illegal to watch. Like, the way that it opens. So this movie's about... It's not like Child Bride or something. No, Don't get the no. wrong impression it, but it is like columbine 1980 this is what like all of those like kids on the internet with like joker facebook profile this is like the movie they should see and not the joker yes <laughs> okay so this film is about three disaffected youths in hong kong in the early 80s who begin making bombs and planting them in public places, movie theaters, restrooms, etc. And they meet this young girl who is... A sociopath. A sociopath. She's sadistic. She she kills mice with, with pins. They're very hard-to-watch scenes. Yeah, there's lots of animal violence. It's real. The mice stuff is real. Yes. And, and she meets these... She sees them plant a bomb in a movie theater, and she's like, wow... I want to be friends with you three. And they kind of go on this like weird, adv- it's not an adventure. They go on this, oh my gosh, this Reluctant movie is so fucking adventure. hard to describe. Well, they're friends and then they're enemies, but then they're friends again. That's it's, like, it zigzags. And there's so many scenes that are just like, it, it seems as if there's a violent scene that's just thrown in that doesn't add to the plot or anything. Like these random like moments and encounters with other people and other characters that are just there to pepper the film with this like scuzz, this, this death drive almost. There is this like, impending sense of violence happening any minute like even scenes where they walk past a character who's watching tv there will be like a scene of someone getting killed on the tv yes it's like it's yeah relentless. it's it's, it's and, and yeah like the news is always like kind of playing in the background and it's always the most fucked up shit and like and these kids like they're they're very young and they're well, they're they're high school. They're age. high schoolers, yes. Although I'm not sure, so I'm a little confused about her age. So, part of what makes it their dynamic weird is the three boys 
seem to come from pretty privileged backgrounds. Like the the only one of the three who is even given a hint of a backstory is sort of the the front runner of the group named Paul, and he's the one who builds the first bomb. And you see that he has this like really privileged lifestyle, but like his mom is seems like she's always either drunk or depressed or has a headache. And so it's like he's privileged but neglected. Whereas the girl, Wan Chu, she lives with her brother who is, we'll talk about him more in a minute, but yeah. he's a police officer and she has a job. So it seems like maybe she's older than them or isn't in school for some reason, but she does not come from a privileged background. No, no. And and, and when she has a run in with this like, gang of like bros on the street who are like they're cat calling they're cat calling or they're giving her shit and they're like you know first they all oh, she's ugly no she's hot and they walk over to her and they're like oh you do you ever have any lychees and she's like what what are lychees like you know the fruit and he pulls out his fucking he's like these nuts he pulls out his dick you know it's a these nuts joke and she just puts her cigarette out right on his fucking cock and like books it and they all start dumping uh pepsi on the burning dick and they're shouting lemonade lemonade great scene but i mean (laughs) well i think that really like nails her attitude which it's so like she's such an anti-hero like in so many scenes the film just shows how like angry and hateful she is and like you kind of like her and she's kind of funny, but you're not supposed to like her. No, I don't she's think. the one who's killing animals. I mean, she's like definitely twisted, and and so are like the three disaffected youth boys. But not like she is. But not in, in the way that she is. They're disaffected in a different way because it it almost is implied that they have slightly better upbringings than her, I but think are the... still hate society just as much in kind of a different way, but don't have that edge that she know. does. I, I think don't, the bomb. I think they're just bored. I think well, yeah, that. But I think the bomb kid's the only wealthy one because I think in the very beginning they meet each other and. And the one kid's in not as much of a slum it's as like the a girl. Tenement. Right, yeah. right. But I think only the one who makes the bombs. And I think, yeah, I think Sam's right. I think he's more bored than anything. And he's from a family that's like clearly all about like their image as opposed to yes. actually caring about each other. I think that just yeah. one thing led to another. Yeah. So what I was saying earlier when I was saying this movie feels illegal and dangerous, the reason why I was saying that is because – the bomb making stuff they they show you how to make a fucking bomb in this movie and uh also molotov cocktails later in the movie yes this is a very bomb heavy flick and when they lay out all of the fucking like bits and pieces and they put the fucking thing in the bag and it's just like it feels like oh no wonder this was banned holy shit yeah it was a box office bomb <laughs> How long have you been waiting? To- <laughs> he just jumped in. <laughs> Jesus Christ! And, and and we're gonna go into some historical context for a lot of that stuff later for sure. But like watching this movie, it does feel dangerous to me. Yeah, it's it's funny because I think you could draw some comparisons between this movie and Heather's, which is just a couple huh. years later. That's sad. And has sort of a similar vibe of like misunderstood kid provokes other misunderstood kids to violence and there's bombings, but 
this is like the anti Hollywood. Totally, in every possible this is like way. Heather's meets Bava's rabid dogs. Yes. yes, rabid dogs is definitely one I get a vibe from. And another Euro crime is: Have you ever seen Savage Three with Joe D'Alessandro? No, but I've always wanted to. It's great, and it even begins with real rat violence. To, or mice violence, I should say. But it's like Joe D'Alessandro and his two friends are bored and they just go through like clockwork orange type, you know, wow. violence in yes. the city. It's it's sick. It's funny. We covered cannibal movies last week and now we're more animal. Anyway, yeah. uh, <laughs> later in this film, there's a scene where they fucking like they throw a cat out the window. She does. She does. Yes. She throws a cat out the fucking well, window. Well, so the, the cat comes in and- Attracts it to the mice. Is trying to fuck with- She has this big cage full of pet mice that are clearly like lab mice. Like they're all white. And the cat comes in because it it's like, oh, hey, dinner. Yeah. She throws the cat out the fucking window and it gets impaled on a stake or, or on like a fence post. And it's not real. But because you just it's saw, just be, they just put honey on it. <laughs> but because you just saw like a fucking mouse die, it's like, oh yeah, that cat just died. But it's not real. But anyway, what the movie does that's so nihilistically brilliant. It's the best. After like 20, like 25 minutes after that scene, to show the passage of time, they cut back to the cat rotting on the post. And they do it again a third time later, like just like, getting more and more rotted. It's it's so brutal. But they also come back to the fence because it's like Chekhov's... It's Chekhov's <laughs> fence for sure. Chekhov's impalement. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> this movie does eventually kind of find a... I don't want to say conventional plot, but it does find a con- kind of conventional plot. It finds a plot. I it don't does. know if it's conventional. Nothing's conventional about this. But the, the gang of kids... The girl eventually, like, kind of... The guys realize that she's fucking off a rocker a little bit, and they do some, like, crazy shit to a tour bus of foreigners. And... (laughs) And anyway, they kind of have a little bit of a split, and then she goes and throws a bunch of gasoline on them when they're outside. Yeah, and she starts, gets mad and, and tries she's to got burn them. these like really thick oven mitts on. And she's like throwing firebombs at him, trying to burn him alive. And the kids strip off their shirts and they're having this like dangerous fight in the middle of like a fucking like hill or street thing. And then all of a sudden, this car drives up, this like fancy Mercedes. And the guy in it is like this white guy. Australian or something like that. I think he's pretty sure he's Australian. He's some They're military guy. To be Americans or Australians? Yeah, something like that. And he's like, "Get the fuck off my car!" He doesn't even give a shit. These kids are like shirtless. Like one of them's like burning. He's like, "Get off my car!" And then honks at them. And the four kids put aside their differences because this interloper, this foreigner in Hong Kong, who is this like rich motherfucker, you know, they're they're putting their hatred of society onto this guy who is a very obvious face for it if you know anything about Hong Kong politics and and start throwing fucking rocks at his car. And and then he starts like... Yeah, and not just rocks, but like bricks. Bricks. They, they start fucking throwing... Yeah. He gets out of the car and chases them down and then she runs into his car and tries to start it and he has this little like gift-wrapped package that falls out of the front seat. Anyway, the kids come into this package that has millions and millions of dollar or millions of yen in these like 
money order notes. yeah in these money order banknotes that can only be cashed in Japan and these kids are fucking dipshits and they're trying to figure out how they can cash these the movie just goes on all these different like yeah it like takes a weird turn and so the the gang of like gun runners or whatever they are i know that this movie is 6 or 7 years before cobra but they kind of remind me of the weird like death cult and cobra how they're all these like muscle-bound ex-military tattooed bros like the head of the gang even has a fucking cobra tattooed on the back of his hand that they flash to instead of showing his face which is cool are you bringing the television cameras in here now come on bring it in can't do that why i don't deal with psychos i put them away i ain't no psycho man i'm a hero you're looking at a fucking hunter I'm a hero of the new world. You're a disease, and I'm the cure. Die! Drop it! But it's like such a different vibe that suddenly comes into the middle of the movie. Yeah, that's where I was going to. Like, it just zigzags. First, I was like, oh, this movie is going to be about like this girl adopting these three kids and they're gonna go like on this like badlands type hong kong yeah crime spree and then like no they break off with her but she knows about them so now the whole movie is about her like blackmailing them into doing more stuff for her but no oh it's about them teaming up again and fighting these like I think they're like nom vets. I could be wrong, but I was I was getting that vibe yeah. from them. And like I said, but I was they're getting definitely gun runner. Right, right. They're, I think they're like somebody that like they stayed behind after like the the war, and yeah, they're like, to, oh, we got into shady, to, or or they're working with the CIA most likely, Southeast Asia. Yes, totally. But um, yeah, and it just like at first I was getting frustrated, but when we get to the end, then that's when it like all clicked for me. It's so hard to fucking describe this movie. Well, no, because we didn't get to the other gang yet. Yeah, there's so much. Oh, yeah. yeah. So w- when they're trying to sell these fucking banknotes, they fuck up. Like first one of the kids goes into a bank just to exchange one of the millions of yen. And when he like passes it over to the teller, she's like, wow, a million dollars. I've never seen this much money in my life. And she like walks over like, can I get your ID? And he's just like, I got to get the fuck out of here. I think I fucked up. He looks like they cut to the cameras. And Choi Hark's direction is just so singular i mean there's so many different incredible styles in hong kong but Choi hark's style is just this like i can't describe it it's 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 almost adolescent but it's so specific it's amazing but it's a very tense scene and then later they're like okay you know what we got to go through the fucking black market so they like the girl finds the guy who she fucking burned a cigarette on his dick in that uh you know lemonade pepsi lychee scene and says, hey, who's your boss? I got a million yen here. I want to I gotta talk to somebody. He takes her to this fucking DJ guy. And he's like, yeah, all the other bosses are in jail. I'm the, I'm the main boss. And they get caught up with this fucking gang. who, And they say this turn of phrase that really stuck with me. That the, the gang says this about the kids. Because they're going to steal all the money from the kids. They say, you eat the eggs before you kill the chicken. So they have to help the kids a little bit until they kill them. So they're not just going to, like, fucking take this million. They're going to see what they can get out of these kids. So they kind of bait them along, and they get them through all this shit. But the kids kind of know. So, like, it switches tone yet again when 
They are taken to this nightclub to meet the boss who is dressed like it's the 1920s. And the nightclub scene is like pure Choi Hark. I guess to me, the thing about a lot of crime movies and even horror movies made in 1980 is that they wind up kind of feeling still like 70s movies. This one feels like it's out of time. Like it's made in like 1985 or 1986. Yeah, there's like Michael Mann vibes. And, and I think you get some of that because Choi Hark's use of music, he uses fucking Tangerine Dream in one mm-hmm. bit. Like, yeah, there's so much good. There's this, uh, this little bit of music and there's not a ton of music in the film, but there's this little bit that almost sounds like a Smith's song that's instrumental. It's, it's amazing. But when they go to the nightclub and they get involved with what I think is clearly a triad, it's like they know that they're walking into trouble because a little bit ago I was talking about how there's a scene where they make all these Molotov cocktails. And so they go to this money exchange with bags full of Molotov cocktails. Oh my gosh, there's so much fucking fire in this movie. That parking lot, like, gang... The like Molotov cocktail warriors. It's, oh, so, it's so, cool. so good. I know. It feels like a fucking like like the Warriors gang fights, but like with this like Hong Kong cinema danger to it. You know, where the Warriors is like fun. You know, it's like Robo. No, the Warriors has some dangerous moments. Yeah, f- for sure. But like, honestly, this is more deadbeat at dawn than the yeah. Warriors. Yes, yes. Yeah. Oh my gosh, yeah. That is a great comparison. It it really it really does. It feels like this would be someone's first film but it's it's his third which is so wild although the way that the parking garage fight is shot from so many different angles and the camera's moving there's no way you could do that as a first-time director it's like he knows you can see in, in moments like that like how talented he really is truly and i think that he was almost feeding off of the the energy of the film you know, because it's about yeah. these like disaffected youth, and it feels like it was made by one. Yeah, and we're gonna get into this later for sure. But this yeah. movie is a reference to like the 1967 riots that happened in Hong Kong, that happened when Choi Hark was 17. So like he experienced a lot of these bombings firsthand at that age that these kids are in this movie, and I think he just went into that mindset when he was making it, and just got it. Perfect. Well, yeah, but there's no melodrama. It's never trying no. to teach you a lesson. No. It's never, no. you know, and like it's... that's what keeps it yes. that tone. This movie is anarchistic, but like lowercase a anarchistic. You know, it doesn't have like. There's no, there are no like clear politics. No, 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 no. Like, and the kids don't have politics either. They just want to blow shit up and yeah. destroy things. I mean, they, they recognize that there is this. It's, it's like a death drive in Hong Kong where every single force of power is there to choke them, be it the police, be it the gangs, be it the fucking British crown, the colonial overlords, or the fucking other foreigners who are in there fucking getting their bags. Like every single person is there and this death drive is just like so deeply embedded into Hong Kong culture and so many movies that come out of this time are like celebrating Hong Kong as this great place to go and visit and this one shuts down all of those notions which is why I think that death drive is perfectly encapsulated in the ending in the graveyard where they have this fucking showdown where it's just death is all around them and it's the most fucking brutal 
ending where like it's just uh it's so hard to watch and but we have to talk about the shootout at one Chu's house and we also have <laughs> not yet mentioned her fucking brother Lole. Yes. Lole. As it turns out, one of the guys from this gang of gun smugglers hangs out at the triad bar. And so when the kids come back with all the money that they stole from the like teenage crew, he recognizes one of the notes and is like, wait a minute, where'd you get this? And so that's how he finds out where Wanchu lives. And they basically go to get their notes back and to get revenge. She, meanwhile, has gotten into a fight with Lole, who beats her for misbehaving and then <sighs> handcuffs her to the window in their house with a zip tie. So she's like tied up and can't get away. All these dudes with guns come in just as Lole is coming back from work. And so there's this wild, like, tenement shootout. <laughs> it's so crazy. Do you think that she's supposed to, it's supposed to be like she's one of her mice now? Yes. She's well, trapped in her yes. cage. That's oh, 100% yeah. what's going on. Yeah. Yes. And she eventually, at the end of this scene, falls out the window and gets impaled on the fucking... Just, uh, yeah. like, right next to the cat right. that she yep. killed. Just yeah. desserts. Hoisted yeah. on her own petard, as <sighs> it were. Do you guys think this is an inverted Zero Woman, where if Zero Woman was the villain rather than the vigilante hero? I could kind of see that. Huh. They, well, they have that same, like, dispassionate, chaotic... No. I, I do think there are some similarities to... And maybe it's because we just watched a bunch of these, but... It's so hard to find parallels to this film, and the only things that I was thinking of were Japanese movies, like mm. like some of the pinky violence, like high school movies, where it's it's just like chaotic and violent. And also this movie that I saw a couple of years ago, I think at the start of the pandemic, somebody was streaming it. It's called like Panic in High School. Yeah, I know what you're talking and about. I think there are two versions of it, both made in the 70s, and it has a similar kind of energy where it's basically like about this frustrated Japanese kid who kind of becomes a school shooter, but then all of these other things happen. And so it's just like total chaos showdown in the high school. It's a lot like, um, do you ever read Rage, Stephen King's school shooter book? No. It was his Richard Bachman book. And like- so many like high school shooters, they found it in their locker that he had it taken out of print. You have wow. to get the Bachman four yeah, book. That's set the one to, I have. Read it. You guys are nerds. <laughs> <laughs> the the reason why I don't think this is like an inverted zero woman though is because, like you said in that episode, detachment is her superpower. Whereas I don't think these kids are detached. The I, girl is. No, she responds to things with passionate anger and fury in the way that the Zero Woman doesn't. She's just doing her fucking job. Like when in the early scene at her job at like the printing office or whatever, when some girl says her family's low class, she dumps a bunch of fucking black ink on her head. Like the Zero Woman would not have done that. The Zero okay, Woman would have yeah. gotten her later, you know what I mean? Like like she is, yes, she's cold and detached, but she does, she has a she, yeah, I guess it's not so much that she's detached. It's more that she's antisocial. And I don't mean yeah. that in like 
a way where she's introverted. I mean it in the more classical definition of the term, like antisocial behavior. Like she doesn't seem to have anyone in her life. And the thing that's so interesting to me about her character is like she does all these horrible things, but I feel like we are supposed to sympathize with her because it seems like the movie's suggesting that like her life kind of made her this way. Yeah, and for sure. It almost seems like she does genuinely want to be friends with these boys. She just like doesn't know how to have connections. Yeah, I think it's one of those things where like her and the kids are actually very sweet and sensitive and they're trapped in this corrupt apathetic world and they don't know how to and they like let it just like simmer inside them because they're not the type of people that lash out to the point where like they hit that breaking point where like their way of lashing out is is very like mind-blowing and super violent because they don't they don't they're not nasty enough to do it where like they talk back to their teacher or they call their mom an alcoholic they don't have that in them yeah that by the finally like when they do go crazy it's it's like school shooter yeah it definitely school shooter energy here yeah just in a way more chaotic way like i feel like school shooters have this very specific target whereas their target and her target is just everything and everyone. Right, right. Yeah, so, I mean, despite the fact that this movie doesn't have an answer to all of the issues, it shows you how many fucking issues are going on in Hong Kong society. It's it's very anti-colonial in a lot of ways, and also just, like, fucking anti-everything, it seems. Anti-authoritarian, for sure. Well, I think it's important that... The girl dies before the big climactic ending. And that's kind of like what made the whole movie like make sense to me. You're in a big like smoldering city and everyone stacked on top of each other. And it's just this pressure chamber of chaos and resentment and apathy and malaise. And that when the full violence finally erupts, which is like the ending, the big like rabid dogs, everybody has to go. No one, no, no one's attacking the person that's specifically the cause of their harm. Like Lole is like thinks that the three kids are the cause of her his sister's death, but really there's this the uh, gang of the gun runners who are there, and now they're shooting back, and the three kids have no idea what's going on, so they're just killing everybody, and it's just this like web of like layered madness and. It doesn't even matter that they're all killing each other. They don't even know who's who. They yeah. just are filled with fury and they just fuck it. Like, that's just like getting this bloodbath. Like total war. And, and the way that whole scene kicks off, where the three boys get together and they basically decide off camera they're going to kill themselves. Yeah, I was confused at first. I know, because like it just opens up with them all taking a shot. And then two of them spit out what they were drinking, like, oh, when they start ritzing their mouth with water. And then they cut to the third guy and he's like puking up bile and and they're like oh we got to get a milk he actually did he's like you're making me die alone and they were i guess they were drinking like gasoline or something you it's know it's like a mix of chemicals I yeah, think. yes some like bomb making chemical sludge slurry. i'm guessing they kept that actually cut out because it's one thing to like show kids how to make a bomb it's another thing to show them how to make the poison to kill yourself I mean, <laughs> you all know? you have to do is follow donald trump's advice drink some bleach right right you can actually have a little bit of bleach and it's fine. That'll wash it all away. Yeah, yeah, yeah. it's totally cool. <laughs> oh, uh, wait, did we say, 
So after she gets killed, the three of them know that somebody's coming for the notes and they think that maybe they'll be detected in some way. So they freak out, take a bunch of stuff, a bunch of weapons and go to this like gorgeous, expansive cemetery. And so the ending, I feel like it has a dawn of the dead kind of nod like they have this line where they talk about how crowded the cemetery's getting and yeah <laughs> but it's totally. it's this like beautiful space that overlooks the mountains and yet there they are like trying to kill themselves fighting among themselves and then lole shows up the gun runners show up and it's just like it becomes full-blown nasty exploitation action movie kind of at that point but in the most nihilistic way right right yeah. and i love that giant graveyard not only does it look beautiful but i think like it fits where like you have oh, a yeah. city where everybody's on top of each other and then even when you die you're still fucking shoulder to shoulder with these fucking people you know <laughs> <laughs> yeah you can't you can't escape you're right they're still here they're after us they know we're still in here after the place they don't know why they just remember remember that they want to be in here what the hell are they they're us that's all there's no more room in hell what something my granddaddy used to tell us you know Makumbo? voodoo granddad was a priest in trinidad used to tell us when there's no more room in hell, the dead will walk the earth. Okay, so one thing that I do really want to talk about is how we watched this movie. Yeah, we also should clarify. So I know you said this at the beginning, and I talked about it a little where Choi kind of commissioned a version of the film he originally intended to be put together based on elements he had saved. But watching it is a weird experience because you have certain scenes that look really gorgeous and restored, and then other scenes that are composite cut, which for anybody who's a fan of Hong Kong cinema or maybe even some like Italian horror movies, you've probably seen this, where there are some scenes cut back in that just can't be restored and look all fuzzy and washed out and yeah usually when those scenes come up in a movie i'm like oh we're about to get something gory or something nasty is about to happen that got cut out of the film when it like or see some titties my bloody valentine is the yeah is the one that the dvd is like that but what's so crazy about this is that it, when that composite stuff comes up it doesn't mean that there's going to be any violence or necessarily mean there's going to be any violence. Like all of the fucking like animal death, beautiful HD. But the reason why it was so the censors, when it, when, when the, when Choi Hark presented the film, they said, you cannot have any bombings in this movie. You cannot or, or have any mentions of bombings. Or, yes. So he had to remake the entire fucking film. Probably like half of it. Half of the movie was about the bombings that these kids did. And he made them into uh, hit and run drivers. So they were on this like hit and run driving killing spree. And then they get into the the mess with, you know, the fucking banknotes and, and what have you. 
I'm curious. I do kind of want to see it that way. Like, I didn't watch it because I didn't want to watch them back to back. Yeah. You know, but I think the next time I watch this movie, out of curiosity, I'm going to because that is still pretty fucked up. Yeah. It's it's so crazy. So we've actually never seen Dangerous Encounters of the First Kind, Dangerous Encounters First Kind, because... Well, we have. We just haven't seen Don't Play With Fire. No, no. Don't Play With Fire is what we have seen. Oh, I thought it was the other way around. No, it makes sense that it's called Don't Play With Fire because it's the, the bombings and stuff. It's the fire cut of oh, the film. Oh, okay. Yeah. I get the, it now. Yeah, 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 yeah. So it was released as Dangerous Encounters First Kind... There was a huge controversial swirl because everyone knew that this was the movie that, like, the censor said no. And usually it's – when you think of, like, censorship, you think, like, oh, like the Chinese film market. They censor movies because they, like, mention ghosts or they're, like, pro-capitalism. Or for whatever reason they want, they can just, like, censor your movie or say, like, it's not getting a release over here. Yeah, they hate the supernatural. But, like, Hong Kong is often thought of as this, like, bastion of free speech. It's the place where you can make whatever crazy Category 3 movie you want, you know, fucking go nutso-butso. And this is the movie that they were like, no. No, you— Absolutely no. This is illegal. You can make it about them fucking—the killing the mice— Go have them run over kids in their cars or something. No bombs. Yeah, it's wild. And I don't know. I think this is such a complicated topic because so often, I think especially in America, you, you there's this mentality that like, why would you want to live in a socialist country or, or a communist country? Because... All of their stuff is censored and everything is so limited. And here in the land of freedom, you can make whatever fucking movie you want. But it really, I think that is on some superficial level true, but it's such a fucking lie because I I don't know. I, they'll, they'll never they'll, finance your movie that's from the, the thing. Yeah, yeah, They'll you, never let you make they it. They censor you with money. Right. Maybe like 50 years ago when like you had drive-ins and video stores and it was an actual like free market. But now when there's only what three companies that control every element of like movie making and distribution. No, it's well, not. Well, even then, I mean, so in terms of Hollywood, like where the actual filmmaking money was – once the Hayes Code hit in, in like 1934, 1935, there was this long list of rules of things you could not show in movies. You couldn't show a married couple in the same bed. You couldn't have people commit suicide. You couldn't have a movie end with somebody getting away with their crimes. Like an enormous list of things you weren't allowed to do. And when filmmakers in sort of the new Hollywood movement really worked to change that in the 60s and into the 70s, it's still like it makes me think of uh, the Polish filmmaker Andrzej Żuławski, who I think a lot of you will know from his movie Possession. He made a couple films in communist Poland and wound up leaving because his work got censored. And he just, you know, I think had a lot of problems with authority throughout his life. He's amazing. But for a lot of his films that have been released, he does these incredible commentaries that I highly recommend listening to if you can get the Mondo Blu-rays. But I think it's on his possession track where he sort of laughs at this idea of 
being able to go to a place and make films where there are no censorship because he talks about like how these sort of socialist totalitarian governments like China and like the Soviet Union and its satellite states have a list of things you can't do but in the west like in Europe and America in these capitalist there's systems, not a written down list yeah. it's just like you got to know what you can't do like if you if you do certain things your funding's just going to get pulled or people will start dropping out like if you start barking up the wrong tree you get blacklisted or you get fucking or just donked. silenced because there there's no money to make your film well that's the thing about the MPAA and what makes them so difficult and insane is that they can rate your film but they can't really specifically tell you to cut things out because then that's censorship which they they are against so like they kind of like hint at like you can't have too much of it like they do things in percentages yes but like they make up the rules as they go along too there's no like set like don't do this don't do that and it's just and and that's why like like free american countries free speech isn't real it doesn't exist it's it's self-censorship is the only way like you have to censor yourself you have to like you do the thing and it's your choice where like and there's other countries like no this is how you do it It has to be like this and over here it's like you can do it however you want but you can't do it that way you know what i'm saying but another thing is like the mpa they're not like a government thing they're run by the movie industry and which is exactly what makes it so pernicious is they say like oh well you don't actually this isn't real censorship but if you don't do what we want the studio that's paying for your film is not going to pay for a marketing campaign and it's not going to pay to have it put in all these theaters. So it's like they silence you through money. Totally. But to to bring it back slightly to Dangerous Encounters First Kind, I mean, there's a reason why this movie was censored. Why they were like, Choi Hark, you cannot release this. And... I think the reason why he had such a prolific career after making this film, after making this Which is in- wild. incredibly subversive film, and then he became one of the biggest players in, in Hong Kong cinema, like literally one of the biggest, is because he played ball. He reshot the film, he released it, and then the very next year he made this like silly goofy comedy that made a bunch of money about like some like police investigation that was just like the antithesis of Danger Encounters first kind. And but anyway, what I'm getting at is the reason why this movie was so censored is because it it was playing on a very real, very pretty recent event that happened in 1967 in Hong Kong. Do you know anything about the Hong Kong riots as they're known no. in 1967? I don't know much about Hong Kong at all, honestly. I know that it was a British province because of the Opium Wars. Is that what it was called? Well, Did I just yeah, make that no, up? The no, no, no. Opium Wars, a.k.a. colonialism. Yes. It, right. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> uh, yes. The, the the Queen of England, the King of England, they fucking got their claws, you know, deep into, into Asia, as a lot of colonial powers did. And they held on to Hong Kong until 1997, which is why the main language in Hong Kong was English even though only like 20% of the people actually could speak. But it's it was a really fucking weird place. But so I'm going to give you a quick 
little I mean, like, prehistory here. Not to defend colonialism or something, Whoa. but like, where are we going? <laughs> we go. Where are we going here? But like, a lot of these Cat Three movies we like, we can only see in like they're from like the VCDs from like their native country, and they were forced to have English subtitles, and we wouldn't have never saw them if. <laughs> okay, that's not totally true because I think the internet is a wonderful place where there are people who make fan subtitles for films that don't have them like yeah so we we would find a way true like, okay you know like in jurassic park he says life, life finds, finds a way, a way. <laughs> that is one big pile of shit okay so the 1967 hong kong riots <laughs> sorry here's a little quick prehistory to to catch you up before getting into it so to the west of hong kong is macau where Untold Story takes place. And Macau is a Portuguese colony. Okay. And in 19, or just before 1967, they had like a little uprising against the Portuguese. And the Portuguese had to send in the fucking army to quash it. And they like didn't actually quash it, but they did in a way where basically the, the People's Republic of China, the PRC, had all of the seats of power in Macau but the Portuguese colony still kind of existed. It was this weird, like, fluxy state. And then uh, and then to the north in China, that's when, in the 60s, obviously, that's when Maoism was popping off. And, and the Cultural Revolution, the, the proletarian Cultural Revolution of China was, was happening up there. So there's, like, all this revolutionary stuff happening all around this English colony filled with Chinese people, Hong Kong people. And... I imagine like, Vietnam has like a play. Oh yeah, yeah. Which is, where, which is where Choi Hark was and... actually born. Oh okay, he was born in Vietnam, so he like he was around. Nice sixty seven. That's like the height of it, right? Yeah. Yeah. He was so he was born in Vietnam, and I imagine his parents took him out of there at a very young age. He has sixteen siblings, by the way. Oh wow. And took him to to Hong Kong, where he grew up formally. And in nineteen sixty seven, when he was seventeen, in the early spring of that year. The Hong Kong police, basically at the behest of the British Crown, are brutally repressing this labor dispute at a factory that produces artificial flowers. This little labor dispute basically led to this massive protest and riot movement across Hong Kong that every so many people participated in because it was both anti-British colonial and it was like pro-People's Republic of China and they saw what was going on in Macau. So like they were like, okay, it's time. This little spark at this flower, artificial flower shop factory is like, okay, we're taken to the streets. We're protesting. The anti-British struggle committee is formed. You know, these very like Maoist sounding organizations trying to like take power back. So it's the British Special Forces and the Hong Kong police are both like working hand in hand to quash all of this stuff. Wow. The police supporting colonialism? <laughs> can you, can you believe <laughs> Who it? Who knew? And by the summertime, like, eight protesters are either, like, shot or beaten to death by, by the police. And then, like, that's when tensions, like, reach boiling point. And the strategy on the ground turns violent. And the main tactic of these protesters is to make bombs. And allegedly, they were taught how to make bombs in school. This is alleged. Who knows how they learned how to do it? But in these like left-leaning schools that they went to, they learned how to to make these bombs. And a lot of them were kind of hastily made. 
and and like sometimes they would fucking blow up at the wrong time they would blow up when they're fucking making them so like meth lab kind of volatile shit oh for sure for sure i mean that's guerrilla warfare totally and and so according to this book called uh underground front which is basically like a history of the chinese communist party in hong kong bomb disposal experts from like the police and the british forces defused 8,000 homemade bombs. That's a shitload of and bombs. And that, that's how many they diffused. And, but here's the thing. Only 1,100 of them were real. Oh, sick, yeah. And, and and all the fake ones, they were known as pineapple bombs. I always thought about that. If I was going to pull off a crime, I would, like, leave bomb-looking things so the cops, like, couldn't burst in on my shooting spree or something. <laughs> in the game. In the game. In the game, yes. yes. <laughs> Not in real life. When I'm in playing the game. Doom, I make yes. bombs. <laughs> So, like, I mean, all these fucking bombs are planted around the city, and, I mean, this shuts the transit system down, and this, like, air of fear is gripping everyone. So this, like, revolutionary fervor that they had early on has now immediately become just, like, fear because, like, bombs are going off everywhere. And by October, like, 51 people are killed. 22 of them are by the police, 15 by bombs, 832 are injured. 5,000 people arrested, 2,000 people convicted, and it all ended because some like high-ranking figure in the in the PRC in China, People's Republic of China, said like, "Stop. Can you cool it with the bombs? Stop planting bombs. It's not it's not helping." And and that basically made everyone kind of like hate communist China. Because they blame them for this like bombing wave that that took over the city. I mean, it's a little bit their fault. And think about this movie we just watched. That nihilism of everyone is out to get you from the fucking the the the, the communist revolutionaries to your north to the fuck like, every single your neighbors everybody like there is no one in power who has your interest who they actually are diametrically opposed to your life. You know, it's just it's. It's so anarchistic. It's interesting to think about this as a response. So the world was like popping off in 67, 68, 69. And we will definitely talk about this more in terms of how it impacts Europe when we do our Politiateski episode, because all those Italian crime movies are a direct response to the protests going on there and the bombings. And even in France, the the student uprisings in France at that time. Well, it it wasn't just happening in France. It was happening in Germany, in Argentina, in Brazil, like all around the world. And so it's interesting. Like there are so many movies made in the late 60s and early 70s by like this is i mentioned earlier andrzej Zhuavsky had to leave poland because he made this movie called the devil that is set in the 1800s that's all about the riots happening in poland and the censors could see through what he was trying to do and were like yeah no buddy you can't do this (laughs) so it's like interesting to see a movie from 1980 and think about it as a reflection of those events in the late 60s yes and and the reflection i feel like Choi hark's take i mean i know this sounds this is definitely crass but his take is like all this shit sucks 
Still true. Everything fucking sucks. Yeah, I mean, that doesn't mean that has to be, like, his life philosophy. No. It's just, like, him getting out a little bit of that bile that totally. this inevitably fills you with. I-, I imagine this was a very cathartic film to make. Yeah, yeah. I don't know if it's cathartic to watch, though. Absolutely no. not. No, <laughs> to, to watch, it is It is a... No, I mean, like, it must, be f- it must feel good to pull some G.G. Allen shit, but, like... <laughs> Your 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 friends standing around you, not so much. Yeah, which we didn't mention, and I meant to bring it up, but I just needed to acknowledge the girl who plays Wanchu is this actress, Chenchi Lee. She is so central to the film, I think, being as successfully hateful as it is. Yeah. And she is in, which it's like everybody in this movie... They're in other things, like one of the the kid who makes it to the very end of the movie, sort of. He's yeah, like the one who drinks of, the poison. Yeah, he drinks He's the, the poison. He's the one that makes it. Paul Che, he was in other Choi Hark movies, like uh, and other Hong Kong movies that we love, like Lucky Encounter, which we've talked about before. Oh. He's in uh, Lost Souls. I love which is Lost Souls so our, much. I'm so in- I haven't seen it yet. I'm scared of our that one. Our Ho episode is coming eventually, but it, so it's like usually when we talk about Hong Kong movies amongst ourselves and on this show, we talk about this like network of how all these actors we love are in all these different movies. And it's like, you get to watch your friends and, or like, you know, in your head that people that you've decided are your friends. But here it's like, even though they are in other movies, like she's in fucking spiritual boxer and Cleopatra Jones. It's like, She's in Cleopatra Jones? Yeah. And, wow. And so, like, the but the way the characters look and are written, I think she just is in a small uh, role. I think, are you sure it's not the second one? Because I think the second it's, one. It's the second one. Yeah, yes. and, the, and the Casino of Gold. Yes, or yes, yes that's the wow. second one. Yeah. You guys are the nerds. <laughs> Y'all are the fucking nerds. <laughs> no, I, because the first one, like, stays in the States. The yeah, second yeah, one, yeah. she goes to it's, it's Hong Kong. It's the second one. But, it, like, the way that they appear and act in this movie it feels like i guess my point is it feels like it's not connected to other Choi hark movies and other hong kong movies even yeah. though there are all these other like brutal crime films in hong kong totally this like, feels like its own yeah weird well thing. i know like you said when you were talking about the haze code i know in hong kong at least in that time they were similar in the sense that bad guys couldn't get away i think they had that rule sort of i mean it was more so i'm talking i'm thinking like pre-cat three yeah i think it's i think it's all about triad guys can't get away yeah because in some of the like shaw brothers films do have downer endings on like rare occasion but like i think that it's mostly when they're trying to sell them to china or, or, or to any other markets like outside of hong kong they kind of watch it because hong kong was just was basically fucking Britain. It was Britain's fucking death grip hand holding on to a city and making it like a playland for stockbrokers and shit. Like they got fucking McDonald's there and shit. You Which know? is wild because over there in the UK, censorship's super heavy. Wild, yeah. Super it's, heavy. It's crazy to think that I'm sure at some point we'll do an episode on video nasties because yeah. there are some really great ones in there, but. It's crazy to think that, like, you still have trouble finding certain films in England because the censorship goes so deep. One company is finally releasing House on the Edge of the Park uncut, 
it's been like 40 some years since it came out and and it's like a big deal to them they're like finally we're going to release the uncut well i think that's what happened so 88 films who are this british company that i do commentaries for sometimes also if you like hong kong movies they they've been putting out a lot of them in the last couple of years but i did a gestapo's last orgy commentary track for them and apparently they ran into a problem with the censorship board where the censors were like no this movie cannot be released uncut here so they had to transition to also releasing films in the states because of that wow it's like what the it's 2021 you you're really that scared of this like dumb nazi exploitation movie from the 70s like come on like, as much as i want america to just fucking sink into the ocean i'd love it if it happened right after england if they went know? first yeah mark uh mark kermode they're the bbc's like big film critic yeah. guy when last house on the left was finally coming back like for another re-release or something he was trying to like make a case for it to finally get released uncut. It's like an important movie and thing like that. And at that point, um, it was cut by like 57 seconds. So he goes to like their like censorship board and pleads his case. And then a month later, he hears about the release. And then he's like, now they're cutting it by a minute and 30 seconds. So he's like, because he drew attention to I, it. Probably, but he's like, never let me be your lawyer because I will just get you a worse sentence. The same thing happened with The Devils, basically, the great Ken Russell film that has been censored for a long time, both in the UK and in the US, because Warner Brothers own some of the rights and somebody at warner brothers hates this fucking movie so much that even though it got a uk blu-ray they still weren't allowed to put the cut scenes back in so uh, it's insanity when i was in my early 20s i was on this like motorcycle trip around the fucking country I, i was in some like random fucking town in like the south it was like birmingham but it definitely wasn't birmingham what I did whenever I went to a new city is I would see what fucking movies are playing. But, like, not, like, movies, like, regular movies. Like, repertory screening? Yeah, yeah. I was seeing what, like, weird movies are playing at their, like, weird movie theater. When I was in a, a city that was like Birmingham but not Birmingham, <laughs> the the Devils was playing, and they were advertising it as, like, on 35. Whoa. And they were saying, like, this film, it's never going to be screened again, blah, 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 blah. There's all this, like, hoopla about it. And I, like, wanted to go so fucking bad and like for some reason, I think the person who was like putting me up was like, "Oh, sorry, I, my dog. You watch my dog or something like that." And I was like, "Okay, I'm staying in your house. I gotta like hang out with your dog or something while you're gone." So I'm like, "I'm not seeing the movie. Whatever. I'm sure. I'm sure it's not actually never gonna get screened again." And I, I, I still have never seen it. Oh, I've how, never seen how? the Devils. Yeah. Well, you know why? Because I thought I was gonna watch it on thirty five, and I didn't watch it on thirty five. And I'm thinking like, okay, maybe. One of my greatest life's regrets is just before he died, there was this really wonderful Ken Russell kind of resurgence, and people had all these like festivals around the world in his honor, and. They screened the devils with him there at the Toronto Film Festival. And I was like, so I was like, okay, it will only cost me a couple hundred dollars to go for the weekend. I mean, I was a broke and in my 20s, but it was like, 
this is a once in a lifetime opportunity. And credit cards, baby. Oh my God. Max I, them out. No, don't believe in credit cards. But I talked myself out of it. I was like, okay, it wouldn't be responsible to go. Maybe it will it will come here soon. And no. Biggest regret. Even Batgirl's mad about it. Yeah. Oh, this fucking cat's got. I'm gonna throw this cat onto a fucking spike in the backyard. But I, it's. I know that we only mentioned the devils coincidentally, but I do feel like it's one of the few films that reminds me of Dangerous Encounter, in the way it was treated in terms of censorship and also how dangerous it feels like wait till you see that we got to do a devil's wow. episode. I, yeah. I can't wait to watch I w- it i was late to the party for the devil so i watched for the first time uh, during the pandemic and it was just like yes like fucking oliver reed just going it's so good nuts. an explosive film absolutely brilliant abc tv superbly frighteningly effective time magazine but of course I can prove nothing. This Mother Superior may be little more than a hysterical nun. Exactly. Mere conjecture. And what form does this incubus take? The Devils is not a film for everyone. Vanessa Redgrave, Oliver Reed, in Ken Russell's film of The Devils. Is there anything else on Danger Encounters that you guys want to touch on or or Troy Hark or any of this? I feel like it's it's such a hard movie to fucking discuss because it's like you said, it zigzags all over the place. Right. It's such a dense film and it's such a mean movie. And there's so much history to imbibe along with it that like it's really hard to discuss his career is so colorful and like wild yeah so many different movies and so many like other talents he worked with i mean like john woo of course and of course comedy legend rob schneider oh my god oh my god (laughs) yes he works with rob schneider (laughs) so like yeah like he really could like had an eye for like special people And Paul Sorvino, who, Paul Sorvino, who yeah. appears to not actually be on location, but is like green screen I, in so New we're, Jersey. We're, it's funny. We're talking about the wonderful 1997 action film Knock Off, starring Jean-Claude Van Damme, the Brussels from Muscles. Strike that. Reverse it. Which, it, it's funny. It's a, I love that movie so much. It's so good. It's, it's a wonderful fucking I film. Can't, I still can't believe Charles showed it to me like maybe two years ago. And I was like, what is this? Why yeah. haven't I ever heard it's, of it? It's incredible. I actually prefer Double Team. The... Double Team no. is also great. Yeah. But I think Knock Off is better. Double Team goes like into that weird like... Um what the fuck is the prisoner like island where yes. you can't like it's weird like yeah. there's like four movies in double team yes but, Th- but that's off... also how this is there are yeah. fucking four yeah. movies in dangerous encounter sometimes i wonder if he just like hires you know how like hollywood like we want like four screenwriters on this movie give us like you know you're he's all four of yeah. them yeah he uses all four of the screenplays from the four screen <laughs> yeah <laughs> or, or like in his yeah because he his writes head. a lot of right. them like he's like yeah i'm writing four fucking movies right now it's a really amazing style that is is hard to uh approach off the bat but like once you get a taste it's like wow this is some some sweet sauce really i'm going to revisit i do not have high hopes for i watched it once when i was a teenager and didn't like it at all uh a better tomorrow three i i want to as well i i hated it as well when we were younger we watched it together I think knowing more about Choi Hark's life and how, because the movie's called A Better Tomorrow 3, uh, Love and Death in Saigon. 
And because he was born in Saigon, he was born in Saigon, yes. he was born in Vietnam. I feel like it's kind of like a personal movie, which to me, okay, this is how I'm going to go into watching A Better Tomorrow 3. The movie is just called Love and Death in Saigon. Yes. It's not called A Better Tomorrow 3. It just 3. happens to have Charlie on Fat playing a similar role. Because I remember that was like, I mean, there was a lot of things I disliked about it, but one of it, it was like that um, Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade thing. Where, you know, in the beginning where it shows, like, why he's afraid of snakes, why he has a whip, where he got his hat, you know, like, yeah, it's like that, where it's like, I don't, I hate origin stories like that. Like, even if you do an origin story, you don't have to pack, like, everything about this one guy. Yeah, I, either way, I, I wouldn't mind revisiting that one, even though I'm not a huge fan. Um, Can I just say, also, while we're briefly talking about A Better Tomorrow, um... The incredible Kenneth Sang, who plays the cab driver in Better Tomorrow and Better Tomorrow oh, Two, yes. the guy who owns the cab company. I just need to give an R.I.P. He he died like no. two or three weeks ago. Yeah. Yeah, we're yeah, seeing yeah. him tonight. Oh yeah, we're going to the fucking yeah. Mahoning Drive-in, to see baby. The fucking killer. The killer. Yeah, thirty-five. We... He's Danny Lee's partner, right? Yeah, I haven't yeah. seen the killer in years. It's, I cannot it's my favorite wait. One, I love it so much. Yeah, we, I think, are really lucky that we got to see Hard Boiled on 35 a couple weeks ago, and now the killer. Maybe yeah. somebody will show Better Tomorrow and Better Tomorrow Holy 2 shit. on 35. I will, I will literally eat all the shoes in my fucking closet if I can see a Better Tomorrow 1 and 2 and 35. My girlfriend and I saw a scratched-up 16-millimeter print Whoa. of um, Bullet in the Head. In Austin. Wow. Yeah, just so, before the pandemic. So Bullet in the Head uh, is one of like two major Hong Kong films that directly references these 1967 riots and bombings. Yes. That comes up very prominently in that film. And also if – I don't know if you're familiar. Do you know 2046, the Wong Kar Wai movie? No. It's like – It's one of his later ones. It's a later Wong Kar Wai film that's a sequel, a pseudo sequel to In the Mood for Love, I think. It's it's more of like a companion piece, but it's like kind of futuristic and weird, but it references those bombings as well. There are only two movies that like no one wanted to fucking talk about that shit in cinema, you know, and like – Maybe they wanted to, but we're just not allowed Precisely. to. Precisely. So it's like, I feel like knowing that bit of history, going into these Hong Kong movies, you can kind of like sniff it out at times. Whereas, and Danger Encounters is the one that fucking goes there. And I I, I said this in our Zero Woman episode, and uh, it's because Zero Woman is a movie that's kind of hard to get a hold of. And if you wanted it, I kind of tossed it to a couple of people. There is a DVD that's floating out. It's kind of like it's it's not in print or circulation, but someplace you can get it. Anyway, this movie is so hard to find. Uh, I have a copy of it. Uh, and that's all you're saying. That's all I'm saying. You know, we got a Discord... We got fucking Instagram. There needs to be a Spooky Encounters, Dangerous Encounters crossover film. Yes. Oh, my God. Sammo hung fucking <laughs> wait, wait, wait. ghost bombs. It could be Dangerous Encounters 2 of the, the spooky, spooky kind. kind. Yeah. And it, it, it starts in the fucking cemetery. And somebody comes back as one of the, like, Zhangxi, Mr. Vampire-style hopping vampire ghosts. Oh, my God. I love you guys so yes. much. 
I can see it all in I my know, head. I know. It's very brilliant. Clearly. It's great. I'm not scared of ghosts. <laughs> I have a very good friend who practices witchcraft. Sam, you got any shout outs? So I have a plug. I was a guest on this podcast called Force 5, where what they do is every episode they invite somebody on to talk about their top five blank film. Yeah, I know that podcast. That's a neat one. Yeah. So I talked about my top five favorite war films. Most of them are World War II movies, but there are some other things in there. Do you have Battlefield Earth? Star Wars, I'm War leaving, of the Worlds. I'm leaving this podcast. The Steven Spielberg War of the Worlds, obviously. It's the only one that exists. Right, right. You know? Yeah, I, I'm a little bit afraid. Like, it was a lot of fun to do, and I'm really glad they asked me on, but I'm a little bit afraid that I offended the host because uh -oh. he enjoys mainstream cinema and has a soft spot for steven spielberg who i fucking hate and so i tried to restrain myself but it was hard did you know that Choi hark is known as hong kong steven spielberg that is the most insulting and untrue thing i have ever heard <laughs> i mean long successful career various genres yeah, I, I, honestly, I think every fucking Steven Spielberg okay. could never make knockoff. Here is something that fucking <laughs> that white critic people love to do whenever like, uh, like you know a black or brown or fucking Asian oh, yeah. filmmaker is doing like good movies. They're like, oh, it's the Steven Spielberg of Doodle Doodle. Remember they're calling yeah, M Night Shyamalan that's... Steven Spielberg. I think that's just like some weird fucking white well, thing that they're like, oh hey, look, I can we see found it. a fucking black Steven Spielberg over here. You know? I can see it with Shyamalan because like he has that schmaltz, that Spielbergian schmaltziness. Yeah, yeah, but yeah. yeah. They're both kind of bad but, <laughs> oh, oh jaws and duel accessible in a mainstream way i mean jaws. i love jurassic park jurassic parks and like, those are the three that's all you need really so john is your only uh shout out this week to jurassic park the, the new jurassic park movie <laughs> jurassic, jurassic world, world baby oh my gosh jurassic where, where everyone wears high heels is is it jurassic world three jurassic park six is that like the full <laughs> title oh of it God. it's jurassic park six colon Jurassic World 3. Okay. I got a fucking colon <laughs> for you. Uh, so we started doing a extra episode but that comes out between our between our main episodes the happy hour as we're calling it there are... it's not very happy so far <laughs> we'll, we'll see how it goes and if you sign up for sam deegan's patreon you'll get our episodes a week early uh an extra bonus episode every fucking other week where we talk lots of additional shit oh on, gosh. on it, things that we hate they're pretty loose they're pretty loose these these bonus ones yeah, uh, we love you, Cinepunks. Liam, you're a fucking king. Josh, you the fucking man. And okay, I I know I do this every episode where I say, but we also have to do another episode on blah 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 at some point. We have to do more Choi Hark episodes. And oh, we will. I think there are so many directors where. Like, you know, talking about Cannibal Holocaust last episode, I don't really feel that compelled to say, like, immediately soon we need to do another Diodato episode. But, like, Choi Hark, his movies are all so fucking different that, like, yeah. Damn. Oh, he's, he's incredible. He, Seek he, he them really, out. really is. Start with some of the more accessible ones. Yeah, Danish <laughs> Encounters should not be your first Choi flick. <laughs>
I'm trying to think what else. There's so many of them that. I mean, I Zoo think Warriors. mine. No, wait. Well, Better Tomorrow three, but Zoo Warriors probably would be the best start. to start yeah, with. Yeah. Although, can you imagine telling somebody who's never seen a single Choi Hark movie, I'm gonna show you a triple feature from this director, and it's Zoo Warriors, Dangerous Encounter, and Double Team. Oh my God! Yeah. <laughs> Your head would explode. Yeah. I mean, maybe from sheer joy, but also I'm possibly out of confusion. <laughs> Help me out, guys. I'm trying to close the show here. <laughs> Sorry, I just love talking about Choi Hark. Night, folks. See you later, everybody. Bye.